0: Beloved, conversations about race are so hard because we try to have every conversation in every conversation. And we do that because race and racism are broad topics. So let me just give you one practical tip. This is kind of a bonus tip for this point. When it comes to improving your conversations about race, it's a simple question that can save you both, you and your listener, both a lot of head and heartache. And here it is what did you mean by fill in the blank? What did you mean by fill in the blank? When someone says something that challenges or confuses you, instead of charging them, you can clarify with them. What did you mean by systemic? What do you mean by colorblind? Friends, you might, you might see that that person, when they define it, are like, oh, I agree with that. Don't need to burn the friendship over that. Let's keep going. Next, why is it so hard to talk about race? Fruit two, we don't always agree on what the injustice of racism is. It's so hard to talk about race because, fruit two, we don't always agree on what the injustice of racism is, and we don't agree because, root two, race and racism are complex topics. Race and racism are complex topics. It's so hard to talk about race because we don't always agree on what the injustice of racism is because, root two, race and racism are complex topics. Uh, Consider the idea of race for a moment. Uh, When it comes to race, what exactly are we talking about? A reality, a fiction, a biological reality, but a sociological fact. How many races are there? Has the answer changed over time, and how? And what does Scripture say about these questions? Have Christians always shared an understanding of what it says? And now consider racism. Christians agree that racism is sin. But what that sin particularly is, how clearly it manifests, the extent to which it runs throughout society, and who perpetuates it? Well, that's a different story, isn't it? You might have heard what I said about the Velcro nature of race and racism and disagreed. What's more, when it comes to race and racism, we're not just dealing with sin. We're dealing with ideas and cultures that have molded and morphed over time. We're dealing with the implications of other convictions we hold. For instance, take the mission of the church. What we believe the church's mission to be will impact how we think the church should respond to racism. And that's just one example. We could keep listing examples, but it's clear that often our conversations about race are hard because the topics are complicated. So, what can we do? Study. Study. We can study, we can read, we can learn. And listing all those questions about race and racism a moment ago, my, mo- my, my goal wasn't to confuse you, but to show you the difficulty of the matters at hand. Those are simple questions with complicated answers. Uh, yet the plethora of questions or lack of agreement on the answers doesn't mean the disputes about race are unimportant or they don't have true answers that can be taught, learned, and clarified. Uh, it doesn't mean we should just agree to disagree and, on all these important d- discussions, Rather, the abundance of questions and rebuttals means that the answers will take work. Bible open, like the Bereans in Acts 17.11, Scripture examining work. So when we get to the Q&A, I can um, share some book recommendations, Raymond, if you want to just tee that up. Uh, but let me just add that I think a lot of you uh, probably wish you had more friends who were racial minorities. Or at least I hear that expressed a lot of the times from my white brothers and sisters. And reading books by them is one way to get to know minorities, to hear their experiences, to hear their voices. Next, why is it so hard to talk about race? Fruit three. Fruit three. Sometimes we speak harshly. Sometimes we speak harshly or overstatedly because, root three, race and racism are painful topics. Race and racism are painful topics. Sometimes we speak harshly or overstatedly because race and racism are painful topics. It's one thing for a subject to be complicated. Take the Trinity, for instance, it's complex. It's mystery. And though it's one that deeply, more than anything, bears upon our existence, it is not an issue spoken about with half as much angst as race. And now, of course, the early church had its painful controversies over the Trinity. That said, while those controversies are certainly still relevant, the pain of them is largely removed from our context today. In other words, beliefs about the Trinity have not usually produced the pain beliefs about race have caused. And no people group has been enslaved because of their view of the Trinity. At least in the history of America, no civil wars have been incited over beliefs about the, divi- about the divine's triune nature. No one was redlined by the Federal Housing Administration for being a Unitarian. But when it comes to race, the case has been different. When it comes to race, we're dealing with matters many people understand to touch upon the core of their identity, so the matters are personal. When it comes to race, we're dealing with matters people see in the faces of their children, and so the matters are cherished. When it comes to race, we're dealing with matters many people understand to have financially picked their pockets, so the matters are costly. When it comes to race, we're dealing with matters many Christians understand themselves to suffer from today, and so the matters are relevant. Beloved, when it comes to race, we're dealing with matters that stir up painful memories of rejection and indignity and violence. And so the matters are tender. They're painful. And because racial issues are so painful, they make our conversations weighty and hard. And sometimes those of us who are pained speak out of that pain. We lash out. We exaggerate. We're acerbic. And maybe it's because we feel we won't be heard otherwise. Or maybe it's simply because hurt people tend to hurt people. So what can we do? Remember and forgive. Remember and forgive. Remember that it's possible to be angry but not sin. Psalm 4.4. In other words, sometimes it's okay to be angry. Sometimes it's right. Remember, however, that revenge belongs to God. Romans 12.19. And remember that He didn't take vengeance out on you when He would have been right to do so. Esau Macaulay shares a lesson all Christians can learn from black Christians who are righteously angry angry over racism. He says, the profound act of God's mercy gives us the theological resources to forgive. What do black Christians do with the rage that we rightly feel? We send it to the cross of Christ. Next, why is it so hard to talk about race? Fruit four. Sometimes we don't give the conversation enough weight sometimes we don't give the conversation enough weight. And we do that because, root for race and racism aren't painful topics for everyone. Race and racism aren't painful topics for everyone. It's so hard to talk about race because sometimes we don't give the conversation enough weight. And we don't give it enough weight because race and racism aren't painful topics for everyone. Uh, One reason conversations about race are so hard is because we come to the table with vastly different experiences. Uh, So someone may be talking about race, but in a detached manner. Uh, For this this person, racism is engaged as an idea and not an experience. And what do we do with ideas? We evaluate them. We test them. We think about them in the abstract, poking and prodding to evaluate the truthfulness of claims against what we previously understood to be true. And this may be fine in some sense if the folks we're talking to likewise know racism as an idea rather than an experience. However, when speaking with someone who has been on the receiving end of racism, speaking in such a theoretical manner can be really unhelpful. It not only damages your listener, it also frustrates the conversation. As we've just considered, when many folks think of racism, they're not thinking in abstractions. They're thinking about things that have happened to them and those they love. For them, racism isn't a mental exercise or a matter of talking points. It's an experience they didn't have the luxury of dodging. Like how one sister put it, she said, crises are only political until they become personal. So what can we do? Localize our experience. Localize our experience. Frankly, the temptation to speak about race abstractly is a greater temptation for my white brothers and sisters, whom I love. One simple thing you can do, beloved, is be aware of what we've just described. Don't universalize your experience. Rather, recognize that someone else may have a very real and a very different experience, one that you should recognize as worthy of great sorrow. You know, beloved, I'll just throw this in as a bonus point. One reason it's so hard to talk about race is because for many of you, My guess is this is the most diverse church you've ever been a part of, and that's new for you. And that makes sense. We all have different experiences, and we naturally talk about our experience as if that's what everyone goes through. Next, why is it so hard to talk about race? Fruit five. Fruit five. We disagree on how to apply the Bible to issues of race. Root Route 5, we disagree on how to apply the Bible to issues of race because, root 5, we read the Bible in different ways. We read the Bible in different ways. It's so hard to talk about race because we disagree on how to apply the Bible to issues of race, and we do that because, root 5, we read the Bible in different ways. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God. And each invokes his aid against the other. Pop quiz, who said that? Any guesses? Abraham Lincoln, thank you, brother. Yes. Abraham Lincoln said this in his second inaugural address to a worn, a war-torn country. And it seems while, well, to a lesser degree, the same problem remains. To be clear, the problem isn't the Bible. It's that we have different notions of how to apply the Bible. A one friend of mine, he put it deftly. He said this, One reason believers disagree on issues like systemic racism is that we have different intuitions about common grace insights. Some hold deep suspicion, whether consciously or not, about secular scholarship. Other Christians are more open to it as an expression of common grace. So, Christians who agree on paper about the sufficiency of Scripture still end up with different instincts about how to apply Scripture to the ethical challenges of our day, end quote. So, what can we do? We can name this difference. Name this difference. Scripture is clear in its basic teaching about the gospel. Moreover, no one is allowed to read the Bible however they want. That said, simply recognizing that there can be legitimate differences in how Christians understand the implications of Scripture, recognizing that can go a long way toward engendering charity in hard conversations. Beloved, some of you are having hard conversations about race because you're acting like there is a straight line from the Bible to what you think about this very complicated thing and we'll see more of that in a moment. Fruit, uh, why is it so hard to talk about race? Next, fruit six. Fruit six. We don't know how to talk to one another. Why is it so hard to talk about race? Fruit six, we don't know how to talk to one another. We don't know how to talk to one another because, root six, our churches are largely racially segregated. Our churches are largely racially segregated. Fruit six, we don't, uh, it's so hard to talk about race because we don't know how to talk to one another. And we don't know because root six, our churches are largely racially segregated. Uh, Maybe we could recognize the differences in how we approach scripture if we knew one another. But many American neighborhoods are segregated and so are their churches. Uh, time forbids discussing whether this segregation is de jure or de facto or some mix of the two, but the point is, beloved, despite the rise in interracial evangelical churches, most are divided. And it can't be denied that this segregation is because of the church's racism in the past. As historian Jamar Tisby notes, there would be no black church without racism in the white church. And one distressing effect of this segregation is that it's hard to get to know one another. And so we may very well be ignorant of how members of another ethnicity operate or speak or or of what they've gone through. And often we fill the void of our knowledge or of our ignorance with false assumptions and narratives that frustrate any potential conversations further still. So what can we do? What can we do? Build relationships with people not like us. Build relationships with people not like us. The trend toward multi-ethnic evangelical churches is that minorities attend predominantly white churches, not vice versa. And frankly, beloved, until we see that trend going in both directions, where whites will attend faithful gospel churches where they are not in the racial majority, conversations about race will continue to be difficult. I think that's probably the best bang for your buck out of this talk. Until we see the trend going in both directions where whites will attend faithful gospel churches where they are not in the racial majority, conversations about race will continue to be difficult. You how many times have I heard a white brother or sister say, when I became the minority, I learned a whole lot? Now, on one level, on one level the trend of minorities attending predominantly white churches makes sense uh, because minority, minorities are used to operating in the predominant culture. Kind of like, this is kind of what we do. We know how to do this. Uh, whereas people in the, predominant, in the majority culture aren't necessarily used to that. Uh, but, beloved, I think that gives a reason to kind of think, how much more striking would it be then for white brothers and sisters who don't, have to op- who don't have to operate with outside their culture, how much more striking would it be if they attended churches where they are not in the racial majority? You know, so, uh, Raymond, to be clear, I'm not trying to kick all the white people out of your church. Um <laughs> But I remember uh, my senior pastor, Mark Dever, just saying kind of offhanded on a Sunday, hey, to all the church, he said, hey, are some of you driving past a faithful black church to come to our church? Why? That's all he said. He didn't kick anyone out, but he challenged. And so, you know, uh, a couple months or maybe a couple years later, Mark is you know, preaching at this local church. He's doing some conference. This is this local black church. He looks up, uh, and he sees two of his members sitting there. Uh, and they've joined, the two of his white members, and they're, they're members of this church. And he walks over. He's like, what are you guys doing here? And they're like, well, well you said. <laughs> you know, like, we realized we were driving 30 minutes, you know, 45 minutes to this church when this church is 10 minutes. And we've loved it here. And we've been blessed here. Beloved, I hope we kind of see that. I hope we see that trend only growing. So I'm not trying to kick you out. I am trying to challenge you. I am trying to challenge you. You know, because someone said to me once, they're like, you know, I talk about this with diversity. Um, that I think, and we could talk about this more in the Q&A but I think a lot of the times we want diversity on our own terms, meaning we want our church to be more diverse. We want everyone to come to our church. But beloved, what if it was more important for some of you to go to other churches, for some of you to cross the bridge? Because I tell folks, you know, black people have been doing that for a long time. It's going to have to go in both directions. All right, next, why is it so hard to talk about race? Fruit seven. Fruit seven, we fight and quarrel on social media. And all the pastors said amen. Fruit seven, we fight and quarrel on social media because, root seven, we're having conversations in the wrong place. It's so hard to talk about race because we fight and quarrel on social media and we do that because, Route 7, we're having conversations in the wrong place. While great good can be accomplished through social media, social media by definition inhibits or prohibits many aspects of conversation, tone, body language. It discourages other aspects of helpful conversation. Nuance. Social media rewards inattention. The faster you scroll, the more content you get. The more polemical you are, the more likes you get. And while these challenges may not be unique to online conversations about race as opposed to other topics, social media has contributed something unique to the racial discourse in America a horrifying genre of videos of black image bearers being killed. Think back to the last racial tragedy you witnessed. How'd you learn about it? Was it through social media? Think back to the place you saw people squabbling about it. Was it on social media? Am I saying get off Twitter, Facebook, and the rest? No. But I am saying be careful with them. After all, social media has a disinhibition effect where we are emboldened to say words online that we would never say in person. So what can we do? Talk face to face. Talk face to face. Matthew 18.15 says, when we have a problem with someone, we should first go and address it with them directly and privately. How much better would conversations about race be if we had them across our dinner tables rather than across the internet? this point connects to our last. If we're segregated, we can't talk face to face. And even if we have racially integrated networks in churches, are we taking advantage of them? How many people in your church have never stepped foot, much less had a meal in the home of someone of a different ethnicity? Brothers and sisters, though social media didn't exist in his day, and though he had much to say, John recognized that some conversations were better face to face. 3 John 13 to 14. I've got much to say to you, but I'd rather not write with pen and ink, I'd rather, speak to you face to face. And we need to recognize the same when it comes to speaking of race. Next, why is it so hard to talk about race? Fruit eight. Fruit eight. We don't know what to say at times. We don't know what to say at times. Because, root eight, we're conflicted and lack wisdom. We're conflicted and lack wisdom. It's so hard to talk about race because we don't know what to say at times. Because, root 8, we're conflicted and lack wisdom. And one reason that conversations about race are so hard is because when they come up, we can easily be conflicted or realize just how weak our words are. And Moreover, in racial conversations, as in any conversation, there is a time to answer fools and a time not to. And it's not always clear which time is which. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. So, what can we do? What can we do? Discern whether it's a time to speak or a time to be silent. Discern whether it's a time to speak or a time to be silent. When conflicted, here are a few questions to ask to determine whether you should continue in a conversation about race. So, here are some questions you can ask. Have I prayed about speaking with this person? Have I prayed about speaking with this person? If you lack wisdom as to whether you should talk to that person, do what Scripture says. Ask God. James 1.5, He is happy and willing to give it. Next question, do I have a responsibility to say something? Do I have a responsibility to say something? Is this a situation in which I should be a voice for the voiceless, Proverbs 31, 8 and 9, or point out a brother or sister's sin, Matthew 18, 15, Galatians 6, 1, or am I grabbing a dog by its ears, entering a quarrel, not my own, one I shouldn't enter, Proverbs 3, 26, 17. Love it. I promise you if you're hopping in on the comments on Facebook, you might be grabbing that dog by its ears. Next question, is this conversation good for my heart or my listener's heart? Proverbs 4:23. Is this conversation good for my heart or my listener's heart? Uh, by beginning or continuing this conversation, am I signing up for unnecessary discouragement? Am I needlessly repeating an offense? Proverbs 17:9. Next question Is this conversation good for the building up of my church? Is this conversation good for the building up of my church? 1 Corinthians 14, 26. Well, will this conversation result in the building up or the tearing down of my church? And I was talking about this with Raymond. You know, you guys are in a beautiful building. I love it. I'm jealous. The church that I'm going to go to, we don't even own our building. Uh, but, you know, there might be a couple projects around the church that. Some paint, you know, that needs to be uh, put on the walls here or there. So sometimes tearing down is necessary to build up. But make no mistake, beloved, Christians want to build up. It is way easier to burn a house down than to build one. You know, if brothers and sisters were to listen in on this conversation that you might have, would they be challenged and helped or disheartened and grieved? Is this conversation good for the building up of my church? Next question. Is this person I'm talking to given to unrighteous anger or division? Is this person I'm talking to given to unrighteous anger or division? Proverbs twenty-two, twenty-four, Romans sixteen, seventeen. Beloved, Scripture is clear. We should avoid these kinds of people. Next question. Does this person act as if they're interested in a good faith conversation? does this person act as if they're interested in a good faith conversation? Do they want to make friends or make a point? Do they want to win over people or win an argument? Are they willing to be one? In other words, are they open to their mind being changed? If not, Consider having talking with people who actually want to have a conversation. There are lots of them out there, and you only have so much time. The days, after all, are evil, Ephesians 5.16 says, and short, according to Psalm 103.15. Of course, we are more obligated to speak to some people, family members, than others, And I should qualify that as a pastor, I offer uh, my time to the members of our church regardless of where I perceive them to be on racial matters. But this list of questions, it still offers a helpful rubric, at least for me, for considering how far to go even in these conversations. Next, why is it so hard to talk about race? Fruit nine. Fruit nine. Even if we did know what to say at times we'd be afraid to say it. Even if we did know what to say at times, we'd be afraid to say it. Because, root 9, we fear receiving or inflicting pain. We fear receiving or inflicting pain. Beloved, it's so hard to talk about race because even if we did know what to say, we'd be afraid to say it. Because we fear receiving or inflicting pain. Friends, I'm convinced more Christians than ever want to get issues of race and racism right. Praise God. We don't want to make them worse. We don't want to be insensitive. And when we see the weight of these matters, as we discussed earlier and the harm that can happen if we drop that weight, we tremble. We retreat. Or if we do talk, we speak mainly with those with whom we feel safe. After all, the beloved, the truth is, it is not hard to talk about race with everyone. We likely have people, we feel safe enough talking about these matters, because we trust them. We feel as if they will be nice to us and give, uh, give our sincere questions and qualms if they are hearing. But outside of that group, we don't have the same confidence. I mean, have you ever felt that you'd love to share your honest opinion about a racial matter, but you did not feel like you could? And maybe you felt like the race conversation is often just about black and white, and we could really benefit from talking about the Asian or Native American or Hispanic struggles. But you didn't feel safe to share this thought. And maybe you've tried to share your thoughts before, and the conversation blew up. You were met with defensiveness or disregard. Maybe you were called names even by your friends. Beloved, ask yourself, who would want to sign up for that again? Who wants to enter a conversation in which there is a lot of criticism and little grace? So what can we do? what can we do? Take it easy. Take it easy. Friends, we will make the work of entering these conversations easier if we go easier on each other. In Titus 3, Paul instructs Titus to remind his people to avoid quarreling and to be gentle, toward everyone. That word for everyone in Greek means everyone. Not everyone who voted like me. Everyone. When it comes to these conversations, we have two options, friends. We can outlaw them. Sorry, we can't talk about that here. No fly zone for that conversation. It's one option or we can lower the volume. Take it easy. I love in Genesis when Joseph sees his brothers who sold him into slavery. How did he speak to them? It's a good thought exercise. If you're Joseph, you become king of the world, basically. You see your punk brothers who need you. How do you speak to them? Genesis tells us. Joseph's brothers see him. Genesis fifty eighteen. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And Genesis goes on to say this interesting note. Thus Joseph comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Friends, I'm sorry. But if Joseph can speak kindly to his brothers, you can speak kindly to your brothers and sisters in this church. Next, why is it so hard to talk about race? Fruit 10. Fruit number 10. We don't think well about race and racism. Fruit number 10. We don't think well about race and racism because root 10 we haven't been taught well. We haven't been taught well. It's so hard, beloved, to talk about race because we don't think well about race and racism. And we don't think well about it because, Route 10, we haven't been taught well. And one reason that conversations about race are so hard is because too many American evangelicals lack thinking with biblical nuance. Sadly, when it comes to using our God-given brains, evangelicals often only have two speeds. For the evangelical, if something is not essential for salvation, it's often regarded as unimportant. Issues then are either of speed one, ultimate importance, or speed two, no importance. Reflecting the sin and scandal of evangelicals refusing to love the Lord with their minds, Oz Guinness elaborates on evangelicals' poor thinking habits. He says this, American evangelicals therefore characteristically display an impatience with the difficult, an intolerance of complexity, and a poor appreciation of the long-term and discipline. Correspondingly, we often demonstrate a tendency toward the simplistic, especially in the form of slogans or overly simple either-or solutions, end quote. Friend, this either-or mentality, proclivity, mental proclivity, is why evangelicals often pit two good things against each other, evangelism versus justice, the spiritual versus the social, man's responsibility versus God's sovereignty. It's why we often see those who disagree with us as part of the faithful or as a full-blown heretic. We only have two speeds. And I think the blame for this kind of thinking is largely to be laid at pastor's feet. Hello, Raymond. (laughs) Brothers, I want to ask this though. Why do our people not think deeply about the sin of racism? Is it because we teach on the need to confess and battle lust and greed, but not partiality? As a pastor, brothers, I know how difficult it can be to teach on these matters. To be sure, no pastor can or should be an armchair sociologist or political pundit. And it is easier to become one of these than you might think. And yet, brothers, we shouldn't fall into the other side of the ditch either, the side of complete reticence. Pastors, when it comes to justice, the Bible is not silent. When it comes to the image of God, the Bible is not silent. When it comes to love, the Bible is not silent. No doubt we can only say so much. For the more specific we get, the more we are binding consciences to something Scripture may not specify. So, flip side, members, if you're hearing or wishing, I wish my pastor would just tell me to do X, Y, and Z, know that he can't just say that because what's faithful for you might be different than what's faithful for her. So, yes, all Christians principally, should be just and merciful. We can say that. You're in sin if you're not doing that. But what justice looks like in this brother's life might look different in this sister's life. After all, imagine I say, hey, to be a faithful and just Christian, you got to march in that protest at three o'clock. And this poor sister, single mother, homemaker, is like, that's when my kid naps. And trust me, I I care about justice. But that's when my kid naps. That's, That's how our family kind of works. Well, what we're seeing there is that what's faithful for her could be what's different and faithful for him. And maybe she has a different responsibility to teach these little ones about race and racism. Friends, racism is a monster with many heads. We are going to need lots of different avenues to attack this thing, and that's okay. We all have different roles to play. So, pastors, We do have to realize, brothers, that some of us have wrongly divorced matters of race from discipleship, and we've taught our people to do the same. In doing so, we've wrongly taught our people that Christ's lordship doesn't extend to this area of of their lives and understanding, but it does. We've wrongly refused to model how to have these conversations for, for them, and they have floundered for it. So, what can we do? Kind of going back to this bigger idea about not thinking well, what can we do? Get a 10 speed bike. Get a 10 speed bike. In some sense, the suggested action items above will help you think better, but a crucial one is this find a friend who thinks well and who disagrees with you. That kind of friend. Is like a 10 speed bike on which your thinking can ride around on and be improved. A-, a white pastor comes to mind who once had very strong thoughts on reparations. That is until he spent time with a group of black pastors. Diverse friends enrich thinking, and we're simply going to have to have more speeds than heretic and faithful if we're going to love one another and work together. Beloved, we're going to have to watch more than Fox News or CNN. We must recognize recognize that someone disagreeing with us or with our perspective does not necessarily make that person a racist or a Marxist. We have to recognize that someone disagreeing with us or with our perspective is not necessarily synonymous with that person disagreeing with God members i think if we took up just that recognition our conversations would be so much easier cuz after all maybe i'm maybe i'm not omniscient about this very complicated thing next why is it so hard to talk about race fruit 11 finally fruit 11 Not all of us want to have the conversation. Not all of us want to have the conversation because Route 11, we don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear it. Beloved, it's so hard to talk about race because not all of us want to have the conversation. And we don't want to because if we're honest, we don't want to hear it. It's tempting to think that there's a perfect way to talk about race. And if we just used the right words, then our problems would be solved and we would all get along. Years of having these conversations have shown me that this ideal is but a fantasy of the uninitiated. To be sure, there are better and worse ways to talk about race. That's why I'm having this whole talk. But sadly... In some cases, it does not matter how biblically faithful one's presentation is. There are some folks who, when it comes to race and racism, they don't want to hear it. Or they simply don't want to hear another perspective. And maybe it's because they fear what learning about race and racism will mean. Maybe it's because they wrongly assume that unity means we can never disagree. Maybe it's because they prefer their narrative of the world. Maybe it's because people's minds are really hard to change. Friends, people usually believe what they believe for a reason. The civil rights leader and theologian, C. Herbert Oliver, he noted this that ideas are expressed in institutions, the the ideas that are expressed in institutions are not easily arrived at and therefore not easily changed. Ideas easily acquired are easily lost. The permanence of these institutions make them defy change, and they refuse to give ground without a struggle, end quote. Friends, whatever the case, if sinful stubbornness is our problem, the action step is simple. What can we do Repent. Repent. Friend, if we've been hard-hearted about issues of race, we can either dig in our heels or turn our eyes toward Jesus. In Him we can find a Savior who is tender and forgives our callousness, a keeper who shores up our insecurity, and a friend who welcomes us despite our pushback. There is hope for us yet to repent. The Holy Spirit is not done with us yet. That's another reason why conversations about race among Christians can be so hard. Sanctification can be disorienting. We change. Our friends change. We change at different rates and on different topics. That change can happen without our even realizing it. You know, how many of us like, I posted this, on fi- posted this on Facebook five years ago, and it was fine. People liked it. I post the same thing five years later, and... Pfft. How many of us look up and feel like we are in a room we once knew when it comes to talking about this stuff, yet we no longer know where the walls are? But, beloved, we are safe. Why? Because though the walls may be gone, Jesus is not. He is with us, and he loves us. So, friends, that's it in, some, in, these, in terms of these 11 reasons. We can pick up more in the Q&A. Uh, maybe with this last one, uh, you know, someone asked me the other day, hey, if someone's just like, I don't want to lose my country, I don't like, want to lose my tradition, what do we do then? We can talk about these things Um, But I want to pray for us. And before we pray, beloved, I want to give you some homework, because as you can see, I believe in using your God-given brain. So some homework for you as school starts back up. Here are some questions to discuss. Maybe this would be great for a small group or, uh, you know, with the person you came with. Just a few simple questions. Which of the reasons for why it's so hard to talk about race resonated with you most? 11 reasons. Which one resonated with you most? Why? Which reason did you disagree with most? Why? Which reason would you add to this list? Not an exhaustive list. Lots more reasons why it's hard to talk about race. But I firmly believe, beloved, that if we spend some time thinking about the smaller problem of the dysfunctional communication between Christians about race. We will learn about the larger problems that have for so long divided our nation, our community, and our churches. In other words, the symptoms can teach us something about the disease. So I am all for pursuing justice. I think you'll be more faithful in that pursuit if you understand the basics. A lot of us want to go do something. Yes and amen most of us can't even have a constructive conversation with that person we dread seeing at Thanksgiving, much less on Sunday morning. So I think until that is worked out, until we learn why we can't talk, talking about action may not be as fruitful as we might think. With that, let me pray for us, and then Raymond, I don't know if you'll come up for Q&A, however many minutes we have left. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would help us to be more faithful in these conversations, more humble, more honest, more patient, more loving. Oh, God, give us grace to speak better about race for your glory, for your church, and for our neighbor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs) Oh, <laughs> so you can receive one of those. You don't just pass it on to the next person, there's no obligation for you to sign up. That's right. First question I want
1: to throw out the gate. Yes. I'd like ask a question in a moment. You can get your hand up. You your turn, you're going to bring mics to you. Keep your hand up. They'll walk with you and then we'll pass it around. When we think of this conversation,
0: first, I just want to say thank you for serving us. You served us yes, so well. Thank, no you, sir, this morning, this thank you for having I mean, me, man. Immediately, when we
1: begin this conversation, often there are many people who think to just talk about race.
0: Yeah, because I think that comes from, it's a good question, um, about the instinct to think, okay, if we're talking about this, we're veering in uh, maybe theologically liberal territory or just non gospel territory. Uh, one of the reasons I've discovered, when, so the book I've written, it answers the question why. And often when we ask why, there's lots of reasons. Um, one of those is our definition of the gospel. Doesn't include, uh, it includes personal repentance, but it doesn't include the kind of repentance that bears upon other folks. Or what I mean is that our definition of the gospel is so narrow that we think anything outside of this isn't an implication of the gospel. So I want to be clear. Uh, You know, that's why I'm allowing for disagreements on some of these issues, Uh, because it's not the gospel. But Uh, Jesus in Matthew 28 doesn't just say, proclaim the gospel. He says, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. And our very display of what the gospel does in the church, the unity we have, is hindered and affected if racism goes rampant, right? So, Satan has a keen interest and letting partiality run rampant in a church because then the church can lie to the world about what Jesus can do. So the world looks at the church, sees it divided, and like, nothing special going on over there. And so folks who might have that instinct think, well, all we should do, all we needed to do, all we need to do is proclaim the gospel. And I think sometimes they often think, uh, hey, the gospel is actually what changes people, so just do that and then people will change. But I think history clearly proves that Necess- just because you have a grasp of the gospel doesn't mean you have a grasp of all the implications of the gospel or of your own sin, meaning I still sin and I believe the gospel, so I need people checking me, challenging me about it.
1: We're going to come back to the question of books, and I'm going to ask you about preachers at the
0: end. Yeah. Yeah, brother. Yeah. And brother, let me interrupt. Is that mic on? I don't know. Can you? Okay, they can't. Yeah. Yeah. I can also. Re- I'll repeat it. Don't worry. Go ahead. That's a great question. Tell me your name again. Joshua. Joshua. Okay, so Joshua asked the question and said, hey, I grew up in New Hampshire, basically only one other black person in town, uh, and it's a homogenous community. People are poor. They're not traveling tons. Joshua is maybe able to travel tons with his parents and get exposed to different cultures, uh, but, you know, people's narratives about different ethnicities were kind of filled in from what I, you know, kind of what I was getting at, TV, whatever it may be, like, okay, that person on TV acts this way. Black people are typically criminals on TV. They must be criminal in real life. So what do we do about that? That's a great question. Um, and in some sense, I think it shows the difficulty of kind of homogenous communities and how the nation was segregated and the effects of segregation and how it kind of is a reinforcing uh, problem in that sense. Uh, so what do we do about that? Well, one, jo- one Joshua, one encouragement I have is, well, now you are actually kind of equipped to have some of these conversations, Lord willing. So you can go into that community and be like, I think if you, could it be like this? Could it be different? Or like, how are you getting your assumption about folks like that? But I think what we see in homogenous communities, whether they be all black or all white, is kind of stereotypes in folks' minds. They just share this ideal. And that's where Folks have to break into that. I mean, that's where I'm hoping, you know, the local pastor, he actually travels some, and he's pushing back on some of those stereotypes because it's really difficult when everyone around you thinks the same way as you do. Uh, So hopefully some other ideas break into that community. So there's not one thing you can kind of do to kind of break that in a community uh, that's kind of self-reinforcing that way. And that's where it's just, Lord willing, that's where it's like, okay. And, you know, uh, one other thought I had is, well, two other thoughts. One, that's where books are helpful. Uh, so, you know, there might not be a lot of black folks around, but maybe you can give out some books. Uh, but two, you know, that's where I want to be careful to say, we're not in this for kind of, um, hey, every church needs to be 30% this, 30% that, 30% this ethnicity, because that's not realistic in our country. So faithfulness is going to have to mean something else. So what I want to be clear about is, I'm great with that white church being a predominantly white church. I'm less great with the stereotypes that are being filled in. And that where, what I hope would happen is as they sit under the preaching of the Word, that pastor, if he actually has a more diverse understanding, is saying, how, hey, are we letting Genesis 1:26 to 28, about the image of God fill our perceptions about people? This is a person made in God's image, worthy of love, dignity, and respect. This is an individual, not just an exemplar of another group. Or are we letting TV fill in the effects? Just those kind of unearthing questions get to something, but it's tough in a homogenous community. And that is one of, that is segregation's great work, homogenizing, solidifying, and reinforcing those kind of ideas. Sure. That's a great question. Tell me your name again. Anthony. Anthony, thank you for that question, brother. One thing you're doing is modeling vastly different experiences. So I don't want to speak about anything as if it's just monolithic. This is how it is for all, all black people. This is how it is for white, all white people or whatever it may be. That said, I do think there are generalities, but you're right. I'm coming here preparing to talk to a predominantly white congregation. I think that's what we have before us, Uh, and so if I'm talking to a predominantly black congregation, I actually have just a different talk. Uh, But to get to what you were talking about about mollifying that, um, I was recently with a a well-known black pastor in the DC area. Huge, I mean, like tens of thousands of people in this church, and he talked about how he joined a different denomination, and he did it because he said there's a lot of it's a predominantly white denomination, and he did it because. he said, there's a lot of people in my church, black members, who think white people are white devils. And he wanted to show that that was not the truth. So kind of, you know, just bouncing off of this question, the homogeneity, it runs both ways. Uh, And black people will do the same. So if I'm talking to a group of predominantly black people, I'm coming with that message that, no, they're not inherently white devils. No, we also have obligations in in this conversation. And we have, you know, One reason I like the George Yancey book is because George endorses mutual responsibility. Not necessarily equal responsibility, but mutual, meaning, Uh, and I say this, oh, if I could find it quickly in in the book, Uh, I just have the manuscript here before me, Uh, but I have a Howard Thurman quote where he talks about basically, it just can't be that black people are the victims and white people are the perpetrators. We're not going to make any progress with that kind of thought. And so that's what I would get at. I'm going to talk to generally who's in the room and generally some of their shortcomings, uh, but never once trying to imply that it's only that. Which is, so in my question at the end, that's a reason I would add. Uh, and that's where your, your experience is valuable and helpful to hear. Does that answer your question?
2: Mm-hmm. to 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 the discussion. But I guess I'm just wondering if I haven't had a great answer to given I'm I'm just wondering how you respond to that kind of thing because you know, it, it, it is something that I you mean know, some like William Julius had, um is um Wilson um has, has talked about that in some of his work about um racial issues, about the the, the, the
0: issue of the um the black name that's a great question and your name is sorry. John. Great. Um, Before I answer that question, I found the quote, and I just want to read this because I think it's useful. Uh, This is Howard Thurman and his work, Jesus and the Disinherited. And he says this, in my analysis of hatred, it is customary to apply it only to the attitude of the strong toward the weak. The in general impression is that many white people hate Negroes and that Negroes are merely the victims. Such an assumption is quite ridiculous. I was once seated in a Jim Crow car, which extended across the highway at a railroad station in Texas. Two Negro girls of about 14 or 15 sat behind me. One of them looked out the window and said, look at those kids. She referred to two little white girls who were skating toward the train. Wouldn't it be funny, the black girl said, if they fell and spattered their brains all over the pavement? So what we see, beloved, and this is what we were getting at this morning for those of you who are here, is that before we're black or white, we are sinners, And ethnic partiality can go in any direction. And we all need to be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, John, to your point, uh, you know, on one level, I'm not denying that any person sins uh, or any community might have its predominant sins. Uh, But here's one way I get it that is that all that's going on there. Uh, And that's where two-speed thinking is so dangerous. Here's my solution. They're impregnating people. So, the answer is fix the families or preach the gospel or whatever. Or we could just say all of the above and then some. So, John, if you go to Exodus 6, I think this is really useful because what it shows us is that people's environments affect how they behave. And I think evangelicals, if they say something like, you know, in the inner city, people act like animals. What they are saying, and I'm not endorsing that kind of dehumanizing language, but let's just for the sake of argument. In the inner city, they act like animals. I say, okay, well, could it be because they've been put in a cage? The structural things that bind these communities and keep them down? Now, in that, I'm not excusing individual agency. Bible's clear. We're sinners before God. What we really do matters. We really will be judged for our sins and not just for what someone did to us. But Exodus 6 9, this is really interesting. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel when they're enslaved, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So there we see clearly that someone's environment affects their behaviors. Is it the only cause for their behaviors? No. Am I justifying those behaviors? No. But I am saying, oh man, I got to find this, uh, this one quote. Um, I am saying that we want to be really, here we go. Uh, we want to be really careful of looking at people in a lot harder circumstances than we are that, and this is where it gets debatable, but that uh, at least have ties to racism of the past, the segregation of the past, and saying, well, just pull yourself up, as if we would do the same. So, John, uh, you know, one quote that has haunted me uh, this was one writer, black writer, he put it like this He said, is it, it is not to be wondered at, therefore, that the violent distractions of puberty occurring in such a cage. So, that's what I'm talking about the cage. This is uh, a writer who was talking about this. Uh, occurring in such a cage, annually take their toll, sending female children into the maternity wards and male children into the streets. It is not to be wondered that, that a boy one day decides that if all this studying is going to prepare him only to be a porter or an elevator boy or his teacher, well then, forget about it. And there they go with an overwhelming bitterness which they will dis- disassemble all their lives, an unceasing effort which com- completes their ruin. They become the menial or the criminal or the shiftless, the Negroes whom segregation produce and whom the South uses to prove that segregation is right. So what we see there, brother, is that when we see these negative examples and we see them as, see, that's what happens, those actually can become the very things that reinforce us and keep us away from engaging people like that. Does that get at your question? Yes. Brother, thank you for the question, number one. I appreciate you asking something uh, you are afraid to ask because I think, guys, if we can't do that in the church, where else can we do that? Uh, we don't want to come to church uh, having to hide from people uh, because that will make our fellowship phony and the world will be able to tell. So thank you for that, Matthew. Uh, you're talking about Numbers 12 uh, where Moses' own family opposes the marriage that he's in. Um, and I say this as a biracial uh, person who's in a biracial marriage. My wife is white. Um, what do we do with that? And it kind of gets to your question about uh, Jesus painted as a European and all these things. Uh, I think there's a couple things we do is, number one, we be honest about it. So what we see is God deal honestly with the sin in this passage, Numbers 12. And we want to be honest about these representations of Jesus. Now, on one level, being honest requires... Reporting some inconvenient facts, you walk into churches in Africa and you find the black Jesus, or you walk into churches in Asia, you see this Asian Jesus. It's like, this is what people kind of tend to do, paint God in their own image, uh, hence him saying, don't make any images of, but you know, uh, that command being ignored. Um, so what we want to do is we want to be honest about it. And honesty requires truth-telling and saying, okay, why was this image of Jesus, this Savior, painted as this white dude from Denmark or whoever it is? And how has this been historically abused, right? We want to be honest about it. We also want to be humble about it. So I talk about this when, we, when you kind of discover that, like, oh, no, one of my favorite theologians was, uh, was a slaveholder. What do I do? Well, be honest, be humble. Don't assume that if you lived in that period, you would have necessarily had more theological acuity than that person. It's not, it's not clear that you would have. Maybe. I hope you would have. Uh, but, beloved, I think we should all pray that we would have the same moral clarity today that we have on the past. And what will generations in 500 years be saying about us? I think that should humble us. Uh, and the last thing I think I would say is be hopeful. So be honest. Be humble and be hopeful. Because the truth is, if we're looking for one hero, there's only one person who candidate, who qualifies, Jesus Christ. Everyone else is going to let us down. Uh, and so we want to be hopeful and look to Jesus Christ. So when we're dealing with those kind of images, uh, I think we need to be honest about them. And if they're a stumbling block, deal with them and rectify them. So I'm not just saying be honest and keep it moving. But I like what one brother said. Matt Hall's been here, right? Yeah. yeah so Matt talks about kind of confederate statues, and there was this whole debate, and people, maybe some of yourselves, were getting into arguments, do we tear these things down? And Matt was saying, you know, and he wasn't saying it, like this is gospel truth, but there is a benefit into letting our ghosts haunt us, in teaching us that this can't go on anymore, and being reminded of the truth of these images, so, whatever we do, we want to do it in service of the truth and truth-telling, and how we do that is just a debate we can have across the table.
1: I'm so thankful for your time. I've been so great to help books. Um, yes. I was also challenged a few years ago and, um, by somebody who said, hey, who are the, the black creatures or minority creatures that yeah. you're regularly listening to? And I was ashamed that
0: I, I couldn't name anybody with any consistency. Sure. Yep. To listen to yep. That will never preach anything like I preach because I'm just not like them. Yep. But if you would just list off maybe some books that you found helpful,
1: whether they're historical books on this topic, whether they're practical resources that are more from a Christian angle, or yep. some preachers, the then you'd say, hey, these are good and faithful brothers that would be useful for you to listen to in your life should you have bandwidth, especially if somebody's not a
0: reader. Yeah. They're
1: more of an oral person and they would like to hear
0: some good sermons. Yeah, great question, man. Um. So in the back of my book, I've just got a list of these because I get to buy, so buy a book. If that sounds like a commercial, it's because it is. And uh, so I have, but I have, I'm just going to read this list. So maybe don't buy it. Um, but my first book is the Bible and I list some passages you can go through with a small group. Um, but I'm just going to go through this list. Uh, one book, is called How to Think. I'm, and some of these are not by Black folk, but I'll, I'll get to that. Um, How to Think, A Survival Guide for the World at Odds by Alan Jacobs. This isn't a Christian book, but this book is so useful on how to think, just why you get so riled up when you read something on Facebook you disagree with. So how to think, I think it will make you more fruitful in this conversation. A talk by a black brother is Racism and World Evangelism by Tom Skinner. Racism and World Evangelism by Tom Skinner. You should be able to find it on YouTube. I think Tom was from, no, he's from Brooklyn. I thought he was from Philly. He's from Brooklyn. Um, It's an hour-long address given at Urbana in 1970 uh, that I think is just as power, it is, it is powerful and could have been written yesterday. So Tom is with the Lord now, um, but Tom Skinner, racism and world evangelism. I promise you, it's worth it. Next, narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. So right over here at Westchester, he gave his last uh, public address here, February 1st, 1895. That was really interesting for me to learn. Um, The the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass was such an amazing human being that he had three autobiographies. Uh, But this is his first one, it's his shortest, and it's electrifying. So just reading about the experience of someone else, and just how we got here, I think will be helpful. Uh, This is a collection of sermons that is the reason uh, United We Pray exists. The Negro, his rights and wrongs, the forces for him and against him. The Negro, his rights and wrongs, the forces for him and against him. You can go on Amazon and find a cheap, like, library print of it. Uh, But these sermons preached in 1898 by an African-American pastor in Washington, D.C., are so powerful. Uh, One is called God and Prayer as Factors in the Struggle. Francis Grimke the Negro, his rights and wrongs, the forces for him and against him. The Warmth of Other Sons by Isabel Wilkerson is just a great book on why the nation is shaped the way it is. So, why is New Hampshire all white? Why are all these people in southern LA? Why are all these people in this community in North Carolina? Um, another book, American Apartheid Segregation and the Making of the Underclass, uh, just helps you understand when I drive into poor communities, why do they typically look like this? Why are they composed of people from this ethnicity? Um, Uh, So those are some good ones. In terms of preachers, I mean, I want to recommend just some guys I know. I mean, Omar Johnson is one of the best preachers I know. He is in a small church. You will not read about him on Twitter, but Omar is a fantastic preacher. There's bigger names like H.B. Charles, Charlie Dates, uh, Fabidi, all incredible preachers. So, I mean, if you just sit under some of this preaching, you will be blessed. So those were so the BD, H.P. Charles, but I would tell you, go listen to Omar Johnson, just had a series on Micah, Micah 6, eight. What does the Lord require of us uh, but to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God? So that's what I would say on that one.